This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. The weekend holiday edition as the summer officially kicks off here in the U.S. That was quick. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. All right, Tim, it's also a double issue of the magazine. Coming up, a look at the promise of Bitcoin with the CEO of digital wallet company, Ballet. Also, an important and solemn week as we mark the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd the president and CEO of the National Urban League, on where we are today. A really thoughtful conversation. Plus, Lloyds of London on billions of dollars of claims during the pandemic. All of that to come, we begin with this week's cover story. Someone who is well-known to our Bloomberg audience for her investment bets and her performance. It's all about Kathy Wood, who has become a star both in and outside of the world of ETFs. They call her Money Tree in South Korea and the Godmother in Hong Kong. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week, and Ben Steverman, personal finance editor at Bloomberg News. Joel, uh, people may know about Kathy Wood over the last year because she has become this celebrity inside and outside of, of finance, but she got started at ARC relatively late in her career, and she's been at this for years. Yeah, and what we really tried to do, I think we talk about Kathy Wood almost every day in general at, at Bloomberg News because it's become just one of the most remarkable stories of the past year. Um, but we, what we tried to do and what Ben and um, Claire Ballantyne and Annie Massa did with this cover story was really try to tell a bigger story about who Kathy Wood is, where she came, came from, how she's up into investing, and, and maybe pull, you know, pull some things that, uh, out that nobody had ever really known about her. And, and they did that, and you know, it's really rooted in um, her, I think, having a really deep understanding of the financial industry. Um, before she started ARC, um, she, she had an active, the, the idea of doing an actively managed ETF at um, uh, Alliance Bernstein, which basically said, we don't want you to do that, and she went out and did it anyway, and that's made her basically one of the biggest names in, in finance at the moment. Um, and, and Ben, as you just started to, you know, work in on this story, what what stuck out to you? What makes Kathy different and special? So I think that, the, you know, in the last year, the pandemic has created um, a lot of frenzies. Like we've seen a lot of frenzies in the stock market and we've seen a lot of people promoting themselves and promoting their SPACs. And uh, we've seen a lot of that phenomenon uh, of like almost celebrity culture coming into uh, finance and investing. And so I, I approached Kathy Wood as maybe part of that. But now, you know, the more I looked at her, the more I realized that she's actually been this same person for, for, for decades. Like she is obsessed with innovation and the future. And and what she was saying, you know, five years before the pandemic is the same thing she's saying now, um, more or less. Maybe the timeline has accelerated a bit in terms of the the. the the changes she sees in the economy and the stock market. But um, I, I really think that um, investing in these, this, these future technologies is more, it's almost more about her, her like philosophy of life than it is about making money. I mean, of course she's in it to make money, but I think she has broader goals in mind. Well, Ben, uh, to that point, and among the many, many new things that I learned about Kathy Wood in this cover story by you and Claire and Annie uh, has, has been that she talked about 
she had this really prescient comment back in, in February of 2019 when she told a podcast, it's the, the best thing that can happen for us, and this is going to sound odd, is a crisis. It's usually when innovation takes root and, and gains traction. So, so how did that play out during the pandemic? How did this five-year time horizon that she talks about so much uh, truncate, accelerate? Yeah, I mean, she... Uh, it's incredible if you look at the numbers on her flagship ETF. I mean, we're talking about 150% return in 2020. She was right on. She 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 captured the the mood of the market in that moment, and then it continued to go up uh, all the way into February. Now, since then, um, she's lost about a third of the value in in her fund because you know as the economy's reopened, the market's been shifting towards a little bit more boring stocks. Um, the broader the, the rally is broadened out, and she says that's actually good for her because it means that it means that this is a, actually a sustainable bull market. And I, she keeps telling her investors, who've mostly stuck with her, that um, that she has a five-year time horizon, and she still expects her portfolio to triple over those five years. Plenty of people don't believe that. I, I've got to say, um, and, and so we try to reflect the debate in the story about, you know, is is she right? Is she wrong? Um, you know, is, is this a real grounded opinion, or or is she just um, really hoping against hope? But um, but she's she seems pretty unruffled by what's happened recently. That was Bloomberg News reporter Ben Steverman and Business Week editor Joel Weber. Coming up, it's been just over a year since George Floyd's murder sparked outrage across the globe and became a turning point in the movement to end racially motivated police violence. National Urban League President and CEO Mark Morial on the progress we've made since and how far there's still to go. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Nine minutes, 29 seconds. That's how long it took for George Floyd to lose his life one year ago this week at the hands of a white Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. Now, the revelation of that loss of life seen by the world, so many of us stuck at home because of the pandemic, it ignited rage, set off protests and soul searching not seen in years. The problem's not new. Change and solutions still a work in progress. For more on where we are, what we've learned one year later, and how much more we have to go, Carol, you caught up with National Urban League President and CEO Mark Morial, along with Bloomberg News New York Deputy Bureau Chief Shartia Brantley, on the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. It's all about action now. Mm-hmm. Last year, you know, there was a lot of talk, a lot of pledges, a lot of commitments, and that's a good thing. But I think... As we've seen work from home advance by leaps and bounds, people want to see equity and equality advance by leaps and bounds. And I think people are done with the incremental you know, progress, the glacial pace of progress. And, you know, I'll give it to our Gen Z, the Zoomers. They're over it. They want it yesterday, right. not it, tomorrow. Exactly. And safe to say after, you know, when uh, after George Floyd, like we just talked about, we've had so many conversations. Let's see the action. Mark, the problem's not new. Where are we today? What have we learned? And how much more do we have to go in your view? I think we should keep in mind that the courage of Darnella Frazier, a teenage girl who had the presence of mind to pull out her iPhone and tape uh, what was happening to George Floyd, uh, is the reason we are here today. Uh, if, uh, if, but for what she did, 
this would have been subject to what so many of these police uh, incidents uh, involve, and that is uh, fictitious stories, misrepresentations, and lying about what has happened. We see it in the uh, Ronald Green case uh, in Louisiana where the officers said that Ronald Green died uh, from a, quote, automobile accident. Yet, when the tape comes out, it's clear that they beat him to death for no reason. So I want everyone to remember that it was the weight, the, 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 the presence of mind, uh, and that we need people and citizens to have the presence of mind to capture incidents of injustice. Having said that, I think that the George Floyd moment is a moment that accelerated uh, this new movement for social justice, for black lives mattering, for civil rights and economic opportunity in this country in a very special way. We're at the beginning of the beginning of, uh, of, of a movement, and it is my, my hope and it's my prayer that this moment of injustice has spurred a movement that will last until the work of the movement is done uh, because of the way in which this movement affected people. The George Floyd incident captured the imagination because of the outrage of people not only here in the United States from all walk, walks of life and backgrounds, but also from people all over the world. Having said that, the test is going to be whether commitments and whether this movement, this protest movement, is going to turn into meaningful action. Uh, one thing that is so critical is the passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which right now is a subject, subject of sensitive negotiations. But those negotiations... Uh, are simply because uh, there is recalcitrance in the United States Senate uh, by some to pass a meaningful, substantial police reimagination and reform bill, which is what the George Floyd bill right. is. Mark, are you confident uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act will be passed by Congress? I'm, re I'm going to remain optimistic, but I'm realistic. I understand the nature of the opposition. And then what is the nature of the opposition? You have certain elements uh, on the Republican side, certain elements who do not want to look at the bill on its merit, who simply want to see it as just another battle in the partisan wars that we're involved in, which suggests, well, we can't give Joe Biden and the Democrats a victory, notwithstanding the fact that the George Floyd bill and its enumerated provisions, whether it's banning chokeholds, whether it's giving people access to the courts in a meaningful way by dialing back qualified immunity, whether it's creating a stronger, if you will, excessive use of force criminal statute, uh, and, and I could continue to talk about provisions. Those provisions are supported by the American people. Poll after poll demonstrates that, and notwithstanding that, this bill now passed by the Congress of the United States, the House of Representatives twice, this bill now, with the full support of the President and the Vice President, is still subject to difficult negotiations because of this antiquated, old-school rule called the Senate filibuster. Are you disappointed in them for not taking a firmer stance? There's a lot of, I feel like, doctrines put out, a lot of words said, but do you feel like the corporate community has really stood up uh, and really come out like they should have um, after George Floyd? So the corporate community is not a monolith. It's not a unified group. Uh, there are many who uh, spoke out forcefully, who made meaningful and substantial commitments, 
There's some which put out perfunctory statements, and there's some that have done nothing. Uh, I believe that those that have, and uh, I would point to uh, the actions of the business roundtable as being, you know, fairly significant to the extent that these commitments are lived up to and followed through on, it's going to take three to five years to make those kinds of determinations. Uh, but uh, let's look at the corporate community and not look at it as a monolith, because I don't think it is a monolith. And I think there's a great deal of uh, conviction and sincerity among many. But uh, the, the question is always whether it's a moment of response or whether it's a complete shift. I can tell you that many of the discussions I've had, even in this week, have been about uh, how to increase pipelines and talent coming in from the black community, how to create uh, a corporate atmosphere which is uh, fairer and more equitable and free of racism. Those discussions, and I, and I sense in many of those discussions a degree of sincerity, a degree of commitment, but the pressure, the movement in the community, uh, the, uh, the conversation that has taken place, the attention of people like you in the media has to continue. Don't let this die. Right. Don't let this go away. That was Mark Morial, the president of the National Urban League, and Bloomberg's deputy New York bureau chief, Shartia Brantley. Incredible what the last year has brought us, and not even thinking about the pandemic, Carolyn. Look, hard to believe it's been a year. No, exactly. And what's interesting, and I'm hearing this over and over, and this certainly came out in our conversation, it's all about we have to now stop only talking about it, but actually doing something about it. We need it. to see the data from these organizations, from these businesses. Show right. us that you're making a difference. Exactly. Let's see the change. All right. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, businesses are rethinking the way they protect themselves from unforeseen disasters and the insurance industry taking notice. An inside look at one of the biggest claims handlers in the world and the hundreds of billions of dollars at stake. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Well, the health pandemic was one of those unforeseen events that impacted us in ways we couldn't have imagined. We all know that. And yet there we were, the global economy shut down and businesses tapping their insurers as a result. Lloyd's of London is the largest market for insurance and reinsurance with a bulk of their business in the insuring of events. Hank Watkins is president of the America's region of Lloyd's of London and joined us to talk about the impact. You know, it's clearly been a tragedy globally and in, in many countries we're, we're far from seeing a conclusion to this this pandemic, but for, you know, for the insurance industry, which is, I think, the focus of the conversation today, uh, we've gotten through it pretty well. We were uh, initially looking at, at well over $100 billion in claims globally, as well as a similar diminution of asset values. Uh, the asset values were not hit as hard, but, but there still will, when this is all said and done, be more than $100 billion in claims paid by the global insurance and reinsurance industry. You think of events that were canceled or postponed, Wimbledon, the Olympics, mm -hmm. um, all around the world, just as major events there. So, but, but you know, uh, not to say there was a positive outcome of this, but it forced our industry, which has historically been fairly slow to digitize, uh, to use the, the benefit of, of electronic uh, um, 
distribution uh, to really get on board with that well, across the industry. Yeah, well, sorry. let me jump in. No, no, no. Forgive me. But, you know, what yeah. is digitization in your industry? Like we get it when it comes to retail, right? Everybody going on platforms and, and shopping. I get that. So what is exactly digitization or the digital component that you guys had to ramp up as a result of the pandemic? Well, you look at it from the banking perspective, you know, it's clearly it's, it's converting um, data in, into numerical figures that you can more readily um, use across an entire platform. In the insurance industry, uh, there is a certain element, the insure tech side, that has done a great job at over the past several years, mostly in the personal lines and small commercial space. Mm-hmm. But in the large, more complex risk space, which Lloyd's plays in, we still, prior to the pandemic, uh, did a lot of our business face-to-face. Uh, there was a fair amount of paper involved between submissions and policies and all that. But as of April of 2020, uh, we and a lot of our competitors pivoted very quickly towards electronic uh, transactions. You know, everything was done via via email, policies issued, issued digitally, et cetera. So we, we've come a long way. Uh, we might have gotten there, you know, absent a pandemic in five years. But uh, again, like I said, one of the outcomes that has benefited the industry and Lloyd's is that we've moved a lot more quickly. You mentioned that when all is said and done, it'll be about $100 billion in claims paid out. Um, you talk about the U.S. Open, something that we typically go to. And of course, that was shut down. That's a huge event. Wimbledon, so many different sporting events. What was the biggest claim component? If there's a pie in terms of claims being paid out, was it sports and events? What was it the biggest component that was ultimately paid out because of the pandemic? Carol, I'll speak from from Lloyd's perspective only. Uh, Since we do ensure a lot of events globally, event cancellation was probably 40% globally of our, of Mm -hmm. the impact on us. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, has it then changed? Does Hank, does it change your thinking in terms of policies going forward? I mean, who would have thunk, right? A pandemic. It's like a, one of those black swan events, it feels like. But does it change your thinking about policy coverage um, or clients? Are they changing their thinking about what kind of insurance they have? God forbid we get another pandemic. There were, there were actually uh, products available um, for several years. So, I mean, Lloyd's issued a paper about 10 years ago. Uh, exploring the risk of, of a major pandemic. And uh, it was issued and, and read by some people, I suppose. But then ultimately, there were some policies uh, put out there in the marketplace by a few major firms. And, and there was no take up because mm-hmm. people, especially, you know, post financial crisis, people are struggling to get back on their feet. Businesses aren't thinking about every possible systemic issue out there. Right. They need to cover what it takes to, to run their business. So that, that's the way human nature is, though, right? We, yeah. we spend money on insuring our cell phones, yet we don't necessarily <laughs> take care of our lives or other things as we might. So, Hank, you mentioned that you guys, you insure a lot of events. What's your expectation for the next year or so? Because the world is definitely reopening. But I am curious if a lot of events or those who put on the events are either upping their insurance coverage. I'm just curious, what was the impact as a result of the pandemic? Carol, the impact has been that that buying coverage is significant limits of liability for a major event that could be impacted by another wave or by a, a new pandemic, for example, is very difficult. But we have found a number of, of uh, new insurance providers coming on scene. They don't have any legacy losses. Mm-hmm. They didn't pay for the losses last year. So they have an opportunity now with new capital to go out there, re-underwrite the exposure, and potentially provide solutions to some of these major event 
organizers around the world. That's Hank Watkins. He is president of the Americas region of Lloyd's of London. You know, a really insightful conversation and an area of the business world we sometimes overlook, kind of just take for granted, Tim, but it's a critical piece of the financial support for so many and really of our financial industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, movie theater operators are stepping up efforts to draw people back into their buildings as the pandemic eases here in the U.S. And recent box office returns in Asia are providing reasons for optimism. Yep, we're watching Asia for cues of what happens in the rest of the world. I'm Max CEO Rich Gelfond on why the pandemic can't crush people's love of the silver screen experience. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. The ninth installment of the widely popular and successful Fast and Furious movie franchise, it is rolling out. You might recall last week at the Bloomberg Live virtual event, the Bloomberg Business Week, we caught up with Jason Lin. He, Tim, is the director behind it all. Fast 9, F9 is really the first film of the final chapter. So it was actually, it's actually been very liberating. It's a very different process. So 10 is not necessarily the last one. It sounds like it most definitely is not the last one. I would say the last chapter, I think, you know, we have so many characters that my problem is actually real estate, you know? And so to know that, hey, you know, we have F9, but I also now have real estate for two more movies to be able to tell this last chapter. It, it, it has like really, again, it, it's a very kind of, for me, it's a very fresh way of, of, of you know, really kind of crafting what we're going to do. It opened internationally with most of the ticket sales happening in the biggest movie market in the world, China. Richard Gelfond is CEO of the movie theater company IMAX and had more on the reopening of the big screen. You know, it's it's been a long, cold winter, as you guys are quite aware. And it's nice to have the good old-fashioned Hollywood blockbuster back. And I think, you know, F9 really opened up like a Hollywood blockbuster it did. $165 million globally, $135 million in China. Uh, IMAX's market share was very healthy. It's our biggest opening um, in you know since before the pandemic started. So feeling a lot better than I was a few weeks ago, Carol. Wow, well, that's a big change, yeah. yeah how, I mean, how were you feeling a few weeks ago? And, and what changed that? Was it this opening weekend, especially globally? You know, probably being more honest than I should be, this has been one of the most frustrating periods of the pandemic for me. And that's because I think the world is really ready to go back to the movies. And I think there are a lot of movies that are ready to go. But I think not every territory in the world is ready at the same time and the same pace. And the traditional distribution model would say you open up globally at one time all over the world. But, you know, guess what? This just isn't the time where that works. So th this time is called for different kinds of models. And as a result, um, the studios who mostly were located in Hollywood were looking out their windows and saying, the pandemic is really not doing well here, ignoring the fact that, you know, there have been blockbusters in Japan and China and Korea and Taiwan for months. So I think kind of we've been ready in a lot of places, but the movies just ha haven't been there. And one of the things that was really unique about uh, the release of F9 was it was released in China about five weeks before it's being released in the rest of the world, which is a different model. And I think most of the studios have played it really conservative and said, you know, we're not opening anywhere until we could open everywhere. 
Um, but fortunately, Universal, you know, took a risk in doing this, and it opens in the U.S. in late June. Um, but it really worked, and I think you need to demonstrate that people want to go back to the movies, and you need the kind of numbers that we had in order to get people, uh, studios, comfortable opening their movies. So I think this was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is I remember you saying, too, when you and I talked at that Bloomberg Live event, I think it was back in April, you know how you guys went into COVID earlier because of China and then came out of it earlier, too, because of China and that how China in, in many ways has been a guiding light about kind of where we're going and how the world is reopening. Not apples to apples. I understand that. But it has helped us give us a little bit of kind of the way forward in terms of how the world maybe reopens. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think the big distinguishing thing between China and other places, though, is China didn't vaccinate at the level that other places did mm. and mostly achieved its kind of feeling of safety and low results through social contact tracing and other means that were not used here in the West. So in a way, as good as China's been, um, places like North America could be even better once it really opens up, because I, I imagine you guys noticed at the Nick game the other night, there were 15,000 people, um, you know, having a great time. And I really feel that it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties and people, once they get out of the house and, you know, they can go back to what their lives were like before, I, I think that's going to happen very well, quickly. And I think, you know, it, it, as I said, it's happening in Asia and there's no reason I think that that won't happen. Here. Well, I'm, I'm wondering about that specifically here in the U.S. because we have seen companies like Disney and, and Warner Media, uh, as it has is still called, uh, release theatrical releases direct to streaming, direct to consumer. And, and I'm wondering if you think that consumers have been conditioned to enjoy this stuff at home rather than in a theater, and that might not provide the incentive for them to get back to what they were doing before the pandemic because now they've been able to do it from their couch and not get a babysitter. Yeah, I mean, that's a narrative that I think a lot of the streaming services are promoting, but I don't really think it's going to play out that way. I mean, people were locked in their living rooms or locked in their kitchens. So when you're locked in your living room, you watch movies on your television set. When you're locked in your kitchen, you don't go to restaurants, you eat in your kitchen. When you're allowed to go out, I mean, you look at almost every behavior, look at what's gone on with the restaurants in New York and London and Los Angeles. I mean, people weren't conditioned to only bringing in food. They were limited by the circumstances to doing that. And you even look at um, um, one of the recent films, Godzilla versus Kong, that was um, mm -hmm. released simultaneously by Warner Media um, in, in IMAX. We sold out about a thousand shows around the United States when people could get it for free if there were subscribers on their TV set. So I, I just don't think that's the way it is. I mean, people go to the movies partly for escapism, partly for social reasons, partly for a social activity, partly to get away from their kids, partly <laughs> to get away from their parents. True. You know, everyone has a different reason. But I don't think they're going to say oh, I'd much rather watch this in my living room with my family, which is what I've been doing for the last but, 15 months. It was an interim solution designed mm -hmm. for pandemic. And I don't blame anybody. I mean, if you're Disney, you're Warner, 
you know, you, you know, the, the movie theaters are closed. You've got this content, you paid for it, you've got to do something with it. And by the way, streaming happens to be something that the stock market likes an awful lot. So you say, oh, I'll stream. But they know that that's, a, that's made for a time and a place. And again, I don't want to make too much of it. But if you look at the recent results and the, re, and the projections from the streaming services during the last quarter, as the pandemic has started to fade, you know, the numbers for streaming have, have you know, not kept pace with where they were in the pandemic. And again, that's logical. And people are still going to stream certain things. But for big blockbuster movies like IMAX does, no one's going to look forward to spending Saturday night on the couch with well, their parents. Rich, to be <laughs> fair, just like you're saying, the narrative of the streaming guys, they're kind of talking their book. To some extent, I think it's safe to say that you're talking your book about people coming back. But, I mean, what do you then make of all the streaming deals that are happening right now where you've worked in mergers and acquisitions, you're an investment banker, you understand this world. Do you think this is just a cycle that runs out of steam or do you think there's real momentum? Because there's some things that change as, as a result of the pandemic that will stay with us. And I think there's a lot that would say that streaming is part of that. I think streaming is part of it, but I think in a different way than it was during the pandemic. I think for niche movies and movies that you know cost less in a budget, and have to find a specific audience, releasing them direct to streaming will make sense because the marketing costs are extremely high to do that. Reaching your consumer in a niche market is difficult to find, and I think those things will continue to stream. Also, almost every studio has come up now with a 45-day window uh, where they'll, they'll stream 45 days after opening. Mm -hmm. And I think, if anything, that's going to make the content more valuable and the theatrical run more valuable to the studio. Because remember, how did HBO get started? How did, um, um, how did Netflix get started? They streamed Hollywood movies. And those movies got a lot of exposure, got a brand, got good word of mouth, um, got brand recognition, built sequels, and then people paid a lot to go stream them. Um, you know, as, uh, I'll ask you a question. Name five stream movies from Netflix last year. Um, you know, I, 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 and, and by the way, it is a trick question because I was just in L.A. and I asked 10 people that, and nobody can name five stream movies. during. And that's streaming. When I yeah. was growing up, there were TV movies, and then there were real movies. I think now there's going to be real movies and streaming movies. That's IMAX CEO Rich Gelfon. And to be fair, Tim, you know, he's kind of talking his book a little bit. He's all about the big screen and big blockbuster movies. But he does say that there's going to be movies that you're going to want to see on the big screen. And then there's stuff you'll be like, OK, I can watch that at home. Right. Look, you, you can't exactly replicate the IMAX experience mm -hmm. at home. At least, you know, most people don't have an IMAX screen at their house. No, uh, I don't <laughs> yet. Uh, and I kind of like the popcorn in a theater, too. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stanovac. Ahead in our next hour, a trio of executives on the frontiers of their respective industries. App Harvest CEO Jonathan Webb on artificial intelligence and agriculture. Chobani COO Peter McGinnis 
on his company's latest innovations. And Ballet CEO Bobby Lee on the promise of Bitcoin. I see what you did there. It's a little bit of innovation, right? People kind of disrupting the world. Coming up next, though, if you've been searching for the Fountain of Youth, who is not doing that? Everybody <laughs> is. Well, Silicon Valley may have found it, and it might be in your dog. Man's my dog. best friend. Man's best friend. Why canine life extension research could lead to breakthroughs for the rest of us. I'm hoping my scout's going to help me out here. Aww. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Including Tim Dogs in the Fountain of Youth, crypto, also from a veteran. And another yogurt IPO, Chobani, anyone? <laughs> And farming with AI with the founder and CEO of App Harvest. Looking forward to all of that. First up, though, this hour, a story we both loved. We were talking about it throughout the day. We thought it was about one thing initially, and once we started reading through it, realized it was about something else. Cut to the chase, Tim. It's about man's best friend and how our pups may help us stay forever young by way of Silicon Valley. We got the details from Bloomberg Business Week feature writer and New York Times bestselling author Ashley Vance, who's also the host of Hello World and author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX and the quest for a fantastic future. He was joined by Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. So um, in Silicon Valley, um, life-extending technologies are of great interest. And there's been a lot of, uh, of, of interest in what can be done on a cellular level to basically eke out a few more dozen years. The problem is like testing on humans is actually really difficult because it takes a long time to get there. Um, and that kind of brings us to this story that Ashley got, which was, you know, there's a, a buddy in some of our lives that we could maybe do some testing on. So, so Ashley, what did, what did you find as, um, as you dug into this a little bit? Yeah, well, so there's this company called Loyal, and they're, they're based in San Francisco, and, and you got it exactly right. You know, there's there's at least five or six or seven promising compounds that are out there, things that the doctors and scientists have known about for years that we see seems to extend life in mice and, and to get rid of inflammation and things like that, but nobody's been willing to fund a human trial because you've basically got to do it for 40 for 50 years. And so this company, Loyal, is now going to test these compounds on dogs. And, you know, they think they can run these studies in two, three, four years and see if it works. And and then, you know, the goal is, is if this seems like it's working on dogs, maybe people will be more willing to do some of these tests on humans or just to go ahead and, and greenlight the drugs. So how likely is this? Because as I kidded in the top, you know, we've been on this pursuit of the fountain of youth forever. So how likely is there something out there that, you know, helps out my dog Scout? I'd love to have her forever. Uh, but also, I'd like to live a little bit longer. Well, it's funny, because when I went into this, I was skeptical, <laughs> as you would imagine. Yeah. But, um, you know, I interviewed a number of scientists, and, and uh, there are these, these drugs like metformin and rapamycin, um, which are used in humans for different things, like um, helping with organ transplants and other conditions, that people are, are reasonably certain will have positive effects on dogs and humans. It's just people have been reluctant to 
to try this stuff. And so, um, you know, in my interviews, they're talking about for large breed dogs who live on average about seven years, they think they could live not only kind of two years longer, but have, you know, much um, better lifestyle Mm -hmm. in in their latter years. And so, you know, it's not uh, living forever or anything like that. It's kind of like a, a quality of life improvement that people are pretty sure we will see. So if that ends up, up happening and if it works for dogs, help us connect it to, to humans and to what extent perhaps humans could live just a few years longer and, and what those years would be like. Yeah, I mean, so the thesis of this company is, is that um, the FDA has been reluctant to, to even think about drugs that are as general for something as general as aging. You know, you have to have a medicine that's targeting a specific illness. But if this worked... In the dogs, then this this could pave um, this could pave the way for for maybe easing some of these restrictions. And the scientists I talk to, they don't recommend it for everyone, but they're already taking these compounds. Wow, in a lot that's of the cases. part I love. And, <laughs> and they're curing their their sore shoulder. That you know, you're in your fifties and you got this sore shoulder for months. And this one guy I talked to went away in about a week after, after taking one of these drugs. So, um, so you know, I mean, I you know, I think if you if you make this more mainstream and acceptable by through dogs, it really could change our perspective on this field. It's also a little bit of the kind of a, a perfect sell, you know, like six months extra on something's life or, I mean, even two years, two years is more meaningful with, with maybe a dog, but six months, it's like, who knew, who knew if it worked or not? <laughs> uh, so legit question though, um, there's a lot of money sloshing around in, in this space. And so talk to us about what the funding is like not only for for this company, this startup, but in the rest of the space. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff has seemed kind of fringe in the past, and so you never know um, what to take seriously and what not. I mean, I think in this case, the company is backed by the Longevity Fund is one of its investors, and and they're kind of the 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 top investor in this whole field. They've they've done a bunch of comp. Uh, different startups in this area. But, you know, I think the you can imagine that people would pay almost anything to, to have their dogs live a bit longer. And, and so the, the business case on this one seems, seems clear to me that if, if you really could get this to work, um, you know, the founders of Loyal said they want to try to keep the price low, um, low enough that everyone can use this, but I imagine it will start out quite high. That's Bloomberg's Ashley Vance and Business Week editor Joel Weber. Uh, I thought we spent a lot of money, Carol, on pets before, (laughs) but this is actually taking it up a notch. I think it's clear that people will pay anything to live longer. Just look at my medicine cabinet and all my like creams and ointments. Uh, that is so true. Listen, I love it though. Research, dogs, the life cycle, like you kind of get it and why this might make a difference for all of us uh, going forward. I'm ready to live a little bit longer as long as and, I'm healthy. And who doesn't want their dog to live longer? I want my dog to live forever. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the cryptocurrency market, especially Bitcoin, has been defined by volatility and big swings throughout its short history. But our next guest says it's with good reason and that it won't stay that way forever. The C- CEO of the multi-currency, non-electronic crypto wallet, Ballet, Bobby Lee, is our next guest. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
So the wild burning cryptocurrencies, yeah, it continues. And we recently caught up with Bobby Lee. Tim, he's an entrepreneur in the crypto space. Recently founded Ballet, where he's CEO as well. Ballet is a multi-currency, non-electronic crypto wallet. Bobby's also the author of The Promise of Bitcoin, The Future of Money, and How It Can Work for You. Having a crypto wallet is important. You don't want to lose track. Do not want to lose it. <laughs> All right. Well, he joined us from what you might say was an appropriate place, considering the volatility and kind of gambling feel of the crypto market thus far. He joined us from Las Vegas. The way I explain it is Bitcoin is really a global reserve asset class. It started out as a very small sort of digital currency invented by Satoshi Nakamoto, sort mm -hmm. of this very deep, very nerdy kind of cypherpunk kind of creation. But what we've come to see over the last 12 years is that Bitcoin really has a role in society in the sense that it truly is an independent digital asset class that has a strict limit on the issuance. So people may know Bitcoin has an ultimate cap of 21 million units. And with these two factors, the strict limit of 21 million and also its own sort of independence, you know, decentralized nature, mm -hmm. it's really a beast that cannot be controlled by, by the governments of the world. So it doesn't succumb itself to the inflation that we see with the U.S. dollar and other currencies that's controlled by central bank printing. So uh, now, you know, Bitcoin has already reached $1 trillion in total value. It's come back down a bit in the recent pullback. Right. But I think it's going to go much, much higher than that. You know, we are still, though, Bobby, trying to figure out, is it a currency? Is it a commodity? Is it a collectible? I mean, we are still having these conversations. You do know, too, that the U.S. Treasury, uh, the Federal Reserve are, you know, increasing their curiosity and wanting to know more about it and trying to figure out what needs to be there in terms of oversight. Could that drastically change the dynamic of cryptocurrency as we see it today? Well, so the, the number one misnomer is people misunderstand that currency has to be something that you can spend with in order for, for it to be valuable. I, I take a more traditional view. Currency is really money. And money, even if it's sitting in my pocket, even if it's sitting in my bank account, it's useful to me even if it's not spent. So this is the, the important piece. Cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, it doesn't have to be useful only for spending. It can be useful as an investment, as a hedge against inflation, as a store of value. And in that sense, I think Bitcoin will be very successful. And with regards to regulation, yes, they are very concerned about it because of its particular nature of its so-called awesomeness where it can be sent across the wire instantaneously all around the world. So it really is different from the traditional money in that sense. So that's why you have regulatory agencies all over the world trying to clamp down on Bitcoin. But fundamentally, Bitcoin as, as its own sort of digital currency, it hasn't changed. Even even with the, basically no one can force to change it. Well, what the regulatory agency can do is force people's behavior to change around it rather than the Bitcoin itself. Bobby, what do you do? I work with a lot of smart people. I run into a lot of smart people who are still like, I don't quite understand cryptocurrency. I don't understand it other than it's maybe, you know, a place, a risky asset that you can just make some money or lose a lot of money as well. What do you say to them that ultimately will be, you say it's going to transform the global economy? How so? So a lot of smart people in the world, a lot of successful investors. However, even today, the vast majority of them don't understand and don't get Bitcoin. And this is the reason why I wrote the book. I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, when I first got in touch with Bitcoin, uh, this is my 10th anniversary of being involved, I, I was a you know, decently smart person, have a college degree, computer science and all that. But I was a novice, very newbie, if you will, uh, 
uh, in terms of understanding Bitcoin, the fundamentals, the philosophy, the economics, and also the technology. So today, Bitcoin is already 12 and a half years old. There's still a lot of smart people in the world, educated people who are very successful. But when they see Bitcoin for the first time, to them it's strange and it's just not, it doesn't, it doesn't grok. It doesn't really click in terms of what makes it so special. So that's fine. It's just that Bitcoin is very, very complicated. Uh, you know, it took me a decade to really understand it to the level that I have so far. And I expect myself to really even learn more about it in the coming next decade. Uh, in terms of how is it going to change the world, what's amazing is that now for the first time in the world, we have a unique asset class that is digital in nature that people can send around anywhere in the world from person to person without any third party's intervention, without any third party oversight. Now, from the regulars' perspective, when something has no oversight and no intervention ability, they, they worry. Naturally so, they worry because they're used to controlling they're used to controlling and seeing all the bank wire transfers. They're used to controlling how much money people can withdraw from their accounts. They're used to having limits and all that stuff, including trading hours for stock markets. They're used to all that kind of control. But Bitcoin is so new and radically different, there's no way to control it. And that's how it was invented. It was invented to be this wild sort of animal. Uh, that is not domesticated. So that's why it's so hard for the people around the so, world and the right to really So how does it become a bigger part of the mainstream financial global economy if it's expected to be this wild animal? Which is fine, well, but you got to know that going in. Yeah. But how? Do, that sounds to me a bit problematic to fitting into kind of a stable system, especially if people are counting well, on it. Well, first of all, yeah. absolutely, you're right. First of all, I'm not saying, nor are people saying, that everyone has to use Bitcoin. Remember, this is not a forced sort of thing in the sense that we are not forcing the world to use Bitcoin and to get involved in Bitcoin. What it is, is Bitcoin is a choice. So prior to 2009, prior to the invention of Bitcoin, people had no choice. If you want to send money to someone abroad, you had to go through the banking system, which is like a swift international wire transfer. And there's all sorts of limits, all sorts of delays, all sorts of just critical stuff that's very complicated with the SWIFT wire transfer. Now, people had no choice. Whereas today, people have a choice now. People who want to get involved in cryptocurrency, they can choose to send the money in Bitcoin. They can also choose to receive the money in Bitcoin. Right. And, the, and don't forget, sending money, traditionally we talk about, the, the world is four-dimensional, right? When we talk about sending money, we think of it in the three dimensions, as in the physicality, sending it from one city to another city or another country. Right. But the fourth dimension, which is dimension of time, is very, very important. But that's why we save money. The reason we have money in a bank account is because we chose to not spend it all on the day we earned it. That's the accumulation of the money in our individual bank accounts. That's Bobby Lee, the CEO of crypto wallet firm Ballet. We heard Ray Dalio say earlier this week, Carol, that he prefers Bitcoin mm. over bonds. And there is the growing consensus from investment heavyweights that the market could be a good bet over time. Yeah, time will tell, obviously. All right, still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, yogurt and produce. We explore two very different corners of the food market. We'll hear from App Harvest CEO and founder Jonathan Webb on the latest developments in ag tech. Here's a hint, they're using AI. And up next, Chobani COO Peter McGinnis gives us a sneak peek into his company's plans for growth and commitment to its workers. They're thinking beyond yogurt, Carol. Yeah, absolutely. All I know is I'm thinking about food. I'm hungry. This is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. All right, Chabani, you know it for its Greek yogurt and for reports of a possible IPO later on this year, at least according to Bloomberg sources. Chabani posted $1.5 billion in 2020 revenues and recently announced that it became the first in the U.S. dairy industry to be certified with the fair trade seal of approval, noting how the company has been working with U.S. farms and cooperatives to improve working conditions. And Tim, you cut up with Chabani President and CEO Peter McGinnis. You talked about operating during the pandemic and also on new product innovations. Check it out. The pandemic's been tough for everybody in all businesses, but I'm proud of how we performed. Um, we set out very early, Tim, very, very early on um, to take care of our employees, keep them safe and supported. Uh, safe was the first thing, and supported uh, really was parallel and concurrent, and supported was childcare subsidies and special bonuses yeah. uh, and time off to get vaccinated. And... Um, it really created a healthy, happy, productive workforce. And so we didn't close a single day. We operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week throughout the entire pandemic because the demand was there. Um, so, the, so the plants, the factories ran really well, long and hard. And, uh, and it was an investment. It wasn't an expense to take care of our employees like that because they're healthier and happier, and more productive and wanted to come to work. It's really remarkable to hear because over the last year, we've heard of some just some devastating stories from food processing plants throughout the United States where coronavirus outbreaks took the lives of, of so many employees. But you put measures in place early at the company. And as a result, there were no coronavirus outbreaks in your plant here in New York and South Edmonston and uh, neither in, in the one in Twin Falls, Idaho as well. Correct. Correct. There was community spread. Right. But there was no plant outbreak or spread. And, um, and that was critical. And, and we jumped on this in mid-March, Tim, when it was unpopular, to be honest. I mean, let's have a frank conversation here. Um, it was considered a downstate issue. If you mm -hmm. go way back a year ago, March, and there was no cases upstate New York. There were no cases in Idaho. And we jumped on masks when it was still confusing. Are masks good, bad, and different? Remember all that confusion? Um, and we mandated masks, and we were able to get uh, equipment, ton of PPE equipment, and we cleaned every every uh, two hours in the factories because remember back then they thought it was really spreadable on surfaces, and we were able to get temperature uh, equipment when you couldn't find it. And this is all done second week of March, and it was interesting because um, was it wildly popular <laughs> initially? No, but. Our job as a company, your primary job, whether I'm president or CEO or the executive leadership team or as a company, is to keep your employees safe and also keep the company operating. Yeah. Well, let's um, talk about given that there was surge demand. Well, I want to talk about that surge in demand because you mentioned that you continued operating 24-7 because the, the demand was there. Even thinking back to last March, last April, when so many companies were, were struggling with supply chain issues, um, how, did you, how were you able to keep things going? Again, very proud of the team. Our sourcing team leaned in uh, on pre-ordering milk, cultures, fruit, cups, foils, all up and down the supply chain. Um, and we have great partnerships 
um, throughout our supply chain. And we were able to secure and procure what we needed. Um, and so we had no interruption on the supply chain side of things. So in terms of the plants running 24-7 and us having enough raw material, uh, we powered through it and even powered through the height of the pantry loading, which was third week of March, you know, a year ago, March, and fourth week of March. And so proud of that. Not only, not only did we do that, Tim, we launched three new categories. We launched oatmeal, creamers, and, and coffee, RTD coffee in the pandemic. So three new platforms, and we launched 50 new line extensions um, throughout all of this. So we were able to innovate on top of just operating the base business effectively. How are those uh, platforms doing? Those, the, how is the oat milk doing? How are the new products doing? Uh, it's, it's great. I mean, within a year, we became number two oat milk in U.S. food, um, close to a, you know over a 20 share, um, which is just phenomenal. We're really happy. And that's really the strength of the brand. It's branded Chobani. Chobani stands for trust and quality. And so we have a master brand, not a house of brands. A lot of CPG companies have all these sub-brands. We are Chobani. So it's Chobani Greek yogurt, Chobani oat milk, Chobani coffee creamer. That's Chobani president and COO Peter McGinnis. Carol, it does seem like an IPO is is only a matter of time for the company. We did see Oatly go public. Right. That one a long time in the making. But Chobani has had many different ownership structures in recent years and has come back from some um, some pretty tough times. Yeah, it's another thing. We often say this about you know a good Harvard Business School case study, yeah. but it really has had its ups and downs. So it'll be interesting to watch the trajectory uh, going forward. You're listening to Bloomberg Business. This week, coming up, we round out our broadcast with Jonathan Webb from App Harvest, the CEO discussing the company's first quarterly earnings report since going public and its plans to make robotics a stable of indoor farming. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg recently reported that hedge funds added more shares of App Harvest than any other investment in the consumer staple sector during the first quarter. Well, if you're not familiar with the company, App Harvest is the ag tech company that recently reported its first quarter as a publicly traded company after going public with a SPAC in February. First quarter net sales matched guidance as the company reiterated its revenue outlook for the year. They're looking to upend agriculture, and we've been talking with the company in its C-suite throughout the pandemic and talked with the App Harvest CEO and founder Jonathan Webb this week for an update on the certified B Corp business that is working to change the way we farm and feed the world. Couldn't be more proud of our team here in Kentucky where our first facility is 2.8 million square feet. we built that facility on time, on budget, and in the middle of in the middle of a global pandemic, and we hired 500 people to stand up our first operation, uh, and just really proud of our team. And, and our, our first quarter uh, is a public company. Uh, it, it was it was about you know letting investors know that that we're here to deliver on our promises and. Uh, and we're showing that we're hitting the targets that we're putting out in front of Doing in some, front of investors. So tell us about the business and, and what you're seeing in terms of the kind of growth that's out there and, uh, you know, what you are doing to meet all the demand that's out there. Yeah, so at App Harvest, we're building some of the world's largest controlled environment agriculture facilities, uh, and we're focused on, on fruit and vegetable production. Uh, first crops we're growing are tomatoes. Uh, by Q4 next year, 2022, we'll be growing berries, leafy greens, uh, and vine crops. 
but the thesis is we, we have to bring uh, out, outdoor open field production into controlled environments, and, and we're, we're targeting bringing a lot of the production that's been pushed down to Mexico, uh, bringing that production back to the U.S. So using 90% less water, getting 30 times yield per acre, and, and, and getting the harsh chemical pesticides out. We, on, on the demand side, and we really cannot build and grow fast enough to meet that demand. Uh, the grocers know it. Uh, the consumers are demanding it. And, and uh, we're, we're really proud to be at some of the, the largest retail outlets uh, just in our first few months of growing. We're, you can find us at Kroger. Uh, we're now at Wendy's uh, and, and Publix. And, and many of the top 25 grocers uh, are, are, taking our, are taking our product. You guys really play into this co- whole concept of kind of, you know, locally farming and then serving the community. That's a big part of what you're doing. Yeah, we're one of four public benefit corporations that's a B Corp. Um, and what that means is we have high environmental social governance standards. And, uh, you know, part of what we're doing is using technology to grow fruits and vegetables uh, that, that uh, use far less resources yeah, but the way we're doing it and who we're doing it with is something I'm incredibly proud of. Every every employee mm-hmm. at App Harvest makes a living wage. Every employee at App Harvest uh, has full health care and, and benefits for their family. Uh, and, and, you know, if we want to come out of COVID and say, you know, essential workers are important, well, then every person in food and agriculture should should make a living wage and, and, and get full benefits. Uh, also, every employee at App Harvest has ownership in the company. Uh, and... You know, I was told that this was a pretty radical idea in food and agriculture, and uh, it's the ROI on that investment has been uh, has been what's radical. It, the, 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 we've had nearly 10,000 people apply to work at our company wow. in the middle of COVID, wow. uh, and when you see the labor shortages around the country, uh, we're the polar opposite. We 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 can't get you know we can't go through the applications fast enough. People want to work here, and part of that is showing. Yes, we spend a little money on, on investing in our employees, uh, but be, treating our employees with dignity and respect has been an incredible ROI uh, on, on production and, and productivity uh, here inside the company. So tell me, you say you, you provide a living wage. So what are your workers, I guess on average, I don't know what that always means on average, but what are they making? Yeah, so we, we have a really wide range of skill sets here at the company. So we have engineers and computer scientists working on the robotics right. and AI, uh, and we have plant scientists all the way down to, you know, our, our, our cleaning folks and janitorial staff and, and all the way up to crop care specialists. But, you know, there, there's a standard living wage in the U.S., and uh, for us, uh, entry level, even off the street, $13 an hour, uh, full benefits, uh, with hitting production targets gets people up to eighteen or twenty dollars an hour. Wow. You know, so we're, we're in, and where we're at is really, you know, coal country. Where if you look at right. most of the coal mines in the U.S. that shut down, a vast majority of those were in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. You know, so so here uh, we're far above uh, the 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 current wage that that's out, and and forty uh, percent above uh, what what's already out on the street around us. So. You know, we're, we're trying to tell yeah. people if they come to work and, and show up every day, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to take care of them if, if they're coming to, to work and, and take care of, of what we're doing here day to day. How difficult, though, is it to get to profitability? When do you expect to get to profitability? So e- each facility we've islanded where um, we, we're, 
we we've got a P&L for each facility, and yeah. as we ranch each each facility up, about a uh, year and a half, two years in, uh, it it gets to about steady state, and then each asset is about a 25 year, 20 to 25 year life of that asset. So each facility we build uh, will be operating 20 to 25 years. This is under a current environment where prices in agriculture and food uh, generally are pretty suppressed because of where we're currently at. I mean, you look at our competition in Mexico, is this going to last? Are we going to continue to allow food sold in the U.S. where people in Mexico are getting paid $5 a day? And where in some cases you, you, you can find illegal chemical pesticides mm-hmm. uh, on that product. I mean, agriculture has such a long way to go uh, to catch up where consumers are, are demanding and where regulators are pushing um, that, that, again, you, you can make an argument that the prices today are artificially suppressed. And we'll see those prices rise. And that's where you know, app harvest today and under current environment uh, can exceed and do, do very well. But as those prices rise, you know, we'll, we'll do even better because we can compete under the conditions today and it won't change for us. The other factor on top of all of this, too, is climate disruption. Uh, you look at an open field farmer that has to deal with drought or wildfires or not enough water or water scarcity. Ninety-five percent of a fruit and vegetable is water, uh, and, and we run completely on recycled rainwater, which ultimately keeps our costs lower. So, um, again, it's... It's competing today in today's playing field, but then also have building a resilient, you know, uh, resilient uh, company that, that can be not only competitive today, but but really stand out five, ten years from now. Hey, listen, this is something I've talked about with David Lee, you know, formerly of Impossible Foods, but uh, also at your company, president of the company. You know, we've talked about lighting and the electricity costs. You guys do hybrid lighting. I know you 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 know are using the sun. You're using LEDs. Um, tell us about that component of the equation and how that is going in terms of cost and impact on the environment. Well, if you look at impact on the environment with agriculture today, you have you know harsh chemicals that are degrading our waters. Where the UN has predicted we have 60 years left of fertile topsoil. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about a statistic that we don't talk about that's completely jarring. Is 60 years left? Of, well, I mean. So I'm sitting again in coal country, and right. you think of agriculture, we're mining nutrients out of the ground and they're not replenishing. Uh, we're in a glass facility that allows us to use sunlight first and only add micro mole light from the LED that we need to add that the sun's not adding, uh, running completely on recycled rainwater. Also, being closer to market, reducing that diesel consumption. So if you're looking at a fruit and vegetable coming 2,000 miles from California or Mexico to the East Coast. You know, we get that down to a day drive by where we're at. And, and lighting is uh, one one piece where, where we have energy and using the LEDs gets gets our lighting uh, energy consumption down. But it's really, and we're still working on this. We're working mm-hmm. on it with a lot of universities and outside stakeholders is what is that life cycle analysis in agriculture? There's no one you can really look to to get good answers on what what are the push points Energy was very easy uh, to, to be able to judge on, uh, here's an example, solar and wind versus fossil fuels. That's very binary. It's you know one versus the other. Agriculture is incredibly complex. The U.S. has 40% of our, our uh, food is wasted and, and goes to a landfill. So not only is it the inputs, 
the energy you consume. There's the food waste because of how uh, far we're trucking the food itself. Um, that, that again, there, there's, and we're working on this with universities to try to come up with an overall life cycle analysis. But there's nowhere to look. USDA, mm-hmm. no one has done a really good job on saying well, here are the environmental benefits of, of controlled environment ag. Here are the drawbacks to open field. Here are the plate opportunities to get better. Uh, there, there's no real one organization to look to, whether that's the UN or the USDA or, or any other non-governmental organization. What's incredible to see is just in a short period of years, Carol, the, the decline in the number of people here in the U.S. who are actually farming. I know, and right? It's, it's changed. It is totally changed, and it's a really tough business. I think the challenge moving forward, I mean, this is easy to say, is that how do we feed the world in an efficient way? Right. Make it more productive, but also protect the climate. Yeah. Uh, and so this is one of those companies that's playing into it. That was, of course, App Harvest CEO Jonathan Webb. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. Monday through Friday starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. And that's where you'll find all our full conversations and a lot more content. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the holiday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.